Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. The following programme contains strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Kia ora, I'm Claire Finlayson, Programme Director of the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. The 2019 festival recording that you're about to hear was brought to you with funding from the Dunedin UNESCO City of Literature and with the support of ORFM. This session, Dear Motherhood, featuring Louise Wallace, Clementine Ford, Margella Cullinane, Tina Makareti and Michelle A. Court, was emceed by Charlotte Mackay. Enjoy. Tēnā koutou and welcome to Dear Motherhood. My name is Charlotte Mackay and I am beyond thrilled to be your tour guide this afternoon as we navigate our way through the mothering journeys and observations of this impressive lineup of accomplished wahine. It is no news to any woman that wearing many hats in our day-to-day lives, sometimes changing them multiple times in a few minutes, is par for the course. But there is a special kind of purgatory that comes with wearing the mothering hat that is so hard to encapsulate and yet is so universal that it unifies us in a way little else can. Although it doesn't always feel unifying. It is so easy to feel intimidated and overwhelmed by the seemingly endless demands of motherhood especially in the face of the large amount of photoshopped, insta-perfect, body-shaming, patriarchal that we are fed constantly. Learn how to cut your kids' carrot sticks into the shape of an endangered white rhino while um, um, retaining your pre-baby body and getting it back so you too can be beach ready. How many ways have you messed up your kid? The massive parenting mistakes that have now scarred your children for life. Thinking about having children will make you feel wrong either way. So let's just get it all out on the table. These five women are all managing to do amazing things in the world. The kind of things that make the rest of us wonder what we're doing with our time. The kind of things that if we just read their professional bios, which I will kindly put you through this afternoon, would probably make you question why you felt like getting your children to school on time every morning this week was worthy of any sort of recognition. Just for the record, I have never managed to get my children to school on time for every morning of a whole week, so if you are doing that, I owe you a block of Whitaker's chocolate for being so amazing. Um, My point is, these ladies seem to be nailing it. Motherhood, careers, creative outlet and success. (laughs) No, but wait, but, 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 but... In my experience, motherhood is the great equaliser. Even Michelle Obama has cleaned shit out of her carpet. She may not have written about that in Becoming, but you can bet that it happened. So I encourage you to use this hour to appreciate and feel part of the sisterhood. It doesn't matter if you're the Prime Minister or my nana, if you've parented 13 foster children, or you're about to celebrate your only child's first birthday, if you were raised in a village in Samoa or have always lived in a bustling city centre... Mothering is something that binds us all at some level, even if it is to rebel against it. 
In case you missed the point of this afternoon's talk, these excellent people were asked to write a letter to motherhood. We thought it would be apt if we heard from our guests in order of their current stage on their mothering journeys. So first of all, I'd like to introduce Louise Wallace. Louise lives in Dunedin and is mother to an eight-month-old. She is the author of three collections of poetry published by Victoria University Press, the most recent being Bad Things. She was the Robert Burns Fellow at the University of Otago in 2015, and she is the founder and editor of Starling, an online journal publishing the work of New Zealand writers under the age of 25. Louise Wallace. So, kia ora, thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to be here with these amazing women. Uh, and happy Mother's Day to all you mothers. We made it out of the house. We're wearing clothes. For me, this is a great victory. Um, so I have an eight-month-old, Ethan, and he is wonderful. Um, I do wonder whether I will ever sleep through the night again. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like tomorrow I'm going to wake up and he's going to be 18. So it's kind of all of those feelings at once. I realised it was called Letters to Motherhood, um, but they invited me, a poet, and poets don't follow rules or instructions, so I have written some poems instead. Uh, And I'm going to start with um, the first, it's kind of a standalone poem, um, and this is in response to, uh, yeah, the first kind of few months of motherhood. Um, I feel like I mildly have my shit together now but in those first few months definitely not um and I found it interesting that people were still asking me to do things um and my internal thinking was kind of like it's four o'clock I'm still in my pajamas my boobs feel like they're gonna like burst into flames spontaneously so no I can't do that for you um but instead I wrote this poem so this is called tell me because I want to show my son which is going to make sense by the time we get to the end. So tell me because I want to show my son. Normally I'd love to, but ga ga ga, which is the sound I make to placate my baby when he's not happy having his nappy changed, his mouth wiped, his pants on, his pants off, and also you're okay, Bubba, it's okay, which is the thing you're not supposed to say because it does not acknowledge their feelings, but comes instinctively from my mouth, along with Mama loves you softly through tears on the midnight side of a long, grisly day, and finally hippos, his favorite book, which must always be said in that exact tone. And did I mention already that normally I'd love to, when really I mean I'm freaking busy, okay? I'm out pushing the pram around these same repeating streets, thinking how can I find the new me? How can I find the old me in this foreign body? Um, So I'm going to read a few poems next um, that... Uh, from a series I have been working on because my baby will only nap on me, not in his cot that we bought that is right next to him. Um, So I do that in the bed with my laptop next to me and type one-handed. So I've got a series that I've been working on that actually works quite well for one-handed typing, uh, which is called Like a Heart. And it's about pregnancy and motherhood um, because I, I don't know how I got signed up for these things, but I got emails from Huggies, the the nappy company. You get one a week while you're pregnant that is like, here's what you're feeling this week about your pregnancy. And they're often like really (laughs) um, naff and yeah, funny. And so what I've done is taken lines and words from those emails and 
uh, fed them through a text manipulation app and they come out very differently and then I kind of shape them into a poem and, yeah, go from there. So it's quite... It's a good project for me because it works in really bite-sized chunks. Um, so hopefully at the end I'll end up with 40 poems. Um, and, yeah, so they, they do sound quite unusual um, because of the construction and sometimes dark or funny. And I'm hoping they kind of capture that feeling of, like, the, the kind of myriad of feelings that you have as a mother, not just like, yay, motherhood, but all those other feelings too. Yeah, so this first one uh, is... Uh, the word trying comes up a lot in the in the first email, so I decided to exaggerate that um, because, you know, when you are trying to get pregnant, it can be, like, all-consuming thinking about that. So this is called Aim for a Healthy Life. The first trying, where it all begins trying, all that trying, even a trying, trying, ignore early trying, trying, and trying, keep complex, trying, trying, a trying, trying, and while the trying may seem to not be trying, the trying you have started may have moved without trying, trying your own trying, and you never know exactly when trying, although there is a small circle of trying, trying generally to survive for longer, but only the most mobile of trying find their trying, up trying, into trying, this trying and trying and trying of trying. So I'll just keep reading this series. Um, and yeah, you're you're allowed to smile and laugh at things. I feel like when I say poetry, people get their serious, I'm listening to poetry face on, but you can make whatever facial expressions you want to. Um, so this is called Like a Heart. Forming channels like a tube, like a heart, primitive, like a tadpole, like a nail head or an orange seed. It is a chance no greater than 1%. It is a personal decision. It is a risky time for your relationship. You have a partner who does not yet know how the world works, to whom it is not yet obvious that it has begun. You find yourself confronting all the news and its effects, your disappointment, your delight, the guilt of every woman, her worry, her joy, her excitement, her meltdowns, and it looks as though you are lying on your stomach. Are you lying on your stomach? You may have a heavy sensation, feel more full, more physically ill. Have you expected you can do enough, enough to prevent someone else's body odour, the fumes of a car, food, perfume? Your nostrils are powerful, is it more down to need or are you feeling lightheaded? Last week is very similar to this week in how you may be feeling. You worry, don't worry, you don't look any different. It's a fairly classic sensation. Symptoms officially known and counted by the morning calculators online. It's the best time for your imagination to wander when you haven't checked that there isn't something going on. Sorry, Huggies, I guess you didn't think your emails would be turned into these, but it's winter. Sit facing the toilet, which, look, it's fine, it's fact. It's winter, according to the new seasonal fruit, so shock your life before it shocks you. Change your partner, change your wardrobe, your secret, your small revelation, nurturing doubt, hear the room, hear the strange thin levels that sound a bit full in your mouth, your vocals, their once serene chords like stone, tight like a budget, ripe as the bulky citrus fruit, sharp and untrue. Um, this next one I I will read this one because I like it because it has like a Marie Kondo vibe at the end about like tidying so we'll get to that so this is called Madonna 
Your subconscious is a deformed mother, a creep with strange hair targeting healthy blood cells, your hardiest organs pruning off sense and science, flooding your reality with questions. You need company and extra vegetables. Someone messages you about beans, ice and other superstitions, not hearing when you say the word coping over their frightening stories that seem to grow in your mind like Lenugo. Buy a small container, they tell you, to store your many questions. It's convenient to be organised rather than unattractive. Nobody should find such great pleasure in muffins. <laughs> uh, so this one is called Cumbersome Repetitions with Friends, which did actually come out of the manipulation app, I promise. Uh, and it's wonderful how those words have come together. It's so hard to be completely yourself while being beaten around the ears with leafy greens. You can see adequate freedom swinging further away as you try to relax daily and not lift heavy things, blitzing vegetables and exposing your mood, poking out your chin and that no-good nose, your hair basically increasing in volume so that everything feels like it might do harm. Oxygen feels dated. You don't mean to sound irritated, but can no one use an iron anymore? If you hear the phrase, your little brain, one more time, and what does the term woman's clothing even mean when they seem to have totally forgotten your shape and the quantities of cereal you must now consume? There's no rest from judgment. You're keen to plan a holiday, a comfortable darkness, experience vague happiness and airline restrictions, frown at the food, lean your cheek in towards some regular and gentle insignificance. The last poem is called Have Confidence in Fibre. Again, <laughs> happy, happy accident of words. Come home to strip off your clothing, an outbreak of raising a little bean. Say hello to an unwelcome second bout of adolescence. You still look like you might have friends. Have confidence in fibre. Brush away your unwelcome friends, your own mum or other woman who have had children but who, now, who are now officially hungry sex glands. Be attentive to your toothbrush, to your own middle lifting up. Try herbal tea or ginger beer or a blueberry the size of disbelief. You wouldn't mind if they inherited your clothing, but your adolescence is so far back. They may be sensitive to that family nose, those lips you get your power from. There is a thickening around your own abilities to speak of your excitement. Brushing against the inside, there is a little bean. Um, I've got my phone on me, so if I get a text that is like, come home now, I may have to leave early. But thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Louise. I think a lot of us can... Um, empathise and appreciate with a lot of that. Even the randomised <laughs> thoughts are quite appropriate, really, aren't they? Um, our next mother and amazing human is Clementine Ford. You'll have to forgive me if I get a little carried away here, as I am a huge fan of Clementine's. I always knew I loved her, but when I read a relatively unimportant sentence in her latest book that said she listened exclusively to musical theatre, I knew it was a forever kind of love. <laughs> Clementine is a Melbourne-based writer, speaker and feminist think thinker. She is a columnist for Fairfax's Daily Life and is a regular con contributor to The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Through her twice-weekly columns for Daily Life, Clementine explores issues of gender inequality and pop culture. 
Her ability to use both humour and distilled fury to lay bare ongoing issues affecting women has earned her a huge and loyal readership amongst both women and men. Clementine's work has radically challenged the issues of men's violence against women, rape culture and gender warfare in Australia, while her comedic take on casual sexism and entertainment has earned her a reputation as an accomplished satirist. Her first book, Fight Like a Girl, was an instant bestseller when it was published in 2016. Her new book is Boys Will Be Boys. Clementine is mum to a two-year-old, so please be amazed at how clean her clothes are. I should, I should just say that I haven't um, changed that bio and I don't write for Fairfax anymore. Um, it sort of ended in acrimonious terms, so that's why I feel the need to point that out. Uh, I'm going to read something. Firstly, Louise, I just have to say those poems were amazing. That was like... My baby's about two years older than yours, but it really took me back. Um, I'm going to read a letter that I I read a little while ago for Women of Letters in um, Sydney, and it was a letter that the theme was Dear Goodbye, but it's a letter about my mother, so I felt like it was appropriate here. Dear Circumstance, before cancer, the worst you can imagine is never as bad as what life throws at you. Before cancer, inherent and unacknowledged optimism tells you that when the person you love goes, you'll be going with them. That in fact, you and everyone you've ever loved will join together on the clifftops that mark the edge of this mortal coil, clasp hands and jump, diving into the great beyond, knowing that everything is going to be okay, because you're all together. The day after we found out our mother might have cancer... I sat with my brother and sister in a hospital waiting room while a doctor ten metres away behind a closed door updated my parents with the details. I kept walking slowly past the room trying to catch a word, any word that might tell me this is all going to be okay. The voices were muffled, so I sat again and put my head on my sister's shoulder. The doctor came out. My father appeared. He turned off the light and closed the door until it was only a few centimetres ajar. Snippets of conversation filtered out. I tried to catch them all, but they flitted through my ears without forming anything solid until I heard my father say, and we'll just throw a big party. I froze against my sister, the cold wave of panic crashing over my body. She held me tightly as my father appeared at the door, invited us in, and told us about the tumour they'd found growing near her liver. An unasked question hung heavy in the room. Are you going to die? We posed less serious variations of it. Can they get rid of it? Are the doctors optimistic? My parents responded vaguely. Hope for the best, prepare for the worst. That's what the doctors say. There's an increasing success rate with this kind of thing, they say. Some of their patients are still going after 10 or 12 years. Which is it, I wanted to ask. 10 or 12. A week later, my mother went into hospital for an operation. 40% of her liver, as she put it, was kaput, But the doctors, that mysterious group of people who you never seem to see, but who hold the fate of the one most dear to you in their hands, thought they could get the rest. There would be recovery, of course, six weeks of bed rest followed by radiation and chemotherapy. But these are the normal hallmarks of cancer treatment. People survive cancer all the time, my family and I told each other. We took a collective sigh of relief. Everything's going to be okay, we thought, because how could it not be? The operation was scheduled to take around six hours, so I was surprised when my father called me two hours in. There were no ambiguities or what-ifs in that phone call, only heaving sobs and uncontrollable anguish. 
What the doctors couldn't see on their scans and fancy equipment became quickly apparent the moment they opened her up and took a look inside. Tumours everywhere, her insides a tapestry of toxic lumps, an impenetrable wasteland with a warning sign spiked into its middle. They closed her up and passed on their apologies. We're sorry. There's nothing we could do. It was worse than we thought. We tried for a while to handle it ourselves. You don't give up on the people you love, and you tell yourself that the doctors don't know everything. We decided not to listen to them. We bought a juicing machine, organic foods, books with titles like Eat Your Way to Being Cancer-Free and So You've Been Told You're Going to Die. I found some tea sold out of Canada that was supposed to be a miracle cure, so I bought it, went to stay with my parents and made sure she drank it every day. In the afternoons, we sat watching TV together, she in her blue dressing gown and me in my jeans. She talked loudly throughout each program, offering a running commentary on everything that was happening on the screen in front of us. The funny thing is that throughout all of this, she seemed so healthy. Her jaundice had cleared and the radiation treatments had even put a little bit of pink in her cheeks. It was easy to believe that maybe everyone had gotten it wrong, that our little home remedies were working and that she might actually beat this thing. But then she caught a fever and lost her appetite. New scans revealed inflammation in her stomach that wasn't going away. She went to hospital for a week and then another week. We were told the only real option left was to have a gastric bypass procedure done. It would buy her three, maybe four months. Dear time, you promise us the world, but we always want more of you. A few days before the operation was scheduled, my parents invited us all home for dinner. My mother was sitting on a chair at the table, wrapped in that familiar blue dressing gown. I noticed that the pink had gone from her cheeks now. My father poured us a glass of wine and got straight to the point, telling us that our mother had decided against having the operation because she was ready to go. What does that mean? I asked, not wanting to understand or accept what he was saying. My mother had been sitting stony-faced in what I now recognise as steely resolve. She looked up and told us how she had come to her decision. She didn't want to spend more time in hospital, to endure more pain and suffering just to prolong the inevitable. They expected it would be quick, she said. The cancer had progressed so far that she could no longer eat. The three or four months I'd been banking on disappeared. We were talking about a matter of days. Then my father spoke the words, the ones that have been seared across my soul forevermore. We've asked you here tonight to say goodbye. We looked at him, tears streaming down our faces. After tonight, you'll go home. She doesn't want you to come back. And we'll stay here and wait. I stumbled outside and lay on the ground. Every memory of every touch, every kiss, every argument, and every laugh shared roaring up through me and crashing out in wet, howling sobs. How could I be ready to say goodbye? To let go of the vessel that had carried me from the beginning the one who had travelled to the mystery to bring me back and make me hers. It's not lost that we feel when we have our mothers taken from us. As David Ferguson once wrote, the reality is far more violent than that. It is an unmothering that feels raw and fundamental, a pain that reaches all the way down to your ligaments and bones. Before we are born, we swirl in the cocoon of that space in our mother's wombs. As Ferguson so eloquently put it, they are our first firmament, literally our first homes, the universe from whose substance we were formed. 
What are we to do when our universe disappears? If we are the hearts that walk around outside our mother's bodies, as Elizabeth Stone once wrote of children, how do we keep on pumping when those bodies are turned to ashes? My sobs subsided and I lay there staring at the stars for a few minutes more. In that moment, I remembered something my mother had said at the start of her cancer journey. You can scream and rail at the sky all you want and to demand, and demand to know, why me? But if you listen carefully, a voice will come back through the night and whisper, why not you? I went back inside and we all tried to ignore the elephant in the room and laughed as best as we could with her. She told us she wanted us to live our lives to the fullest, that she was proud of us and would always love us. She told us to take care of each other. And two weeks later, she was gone. For a long time, I thought of this night only through the heartache of losing my mother, of letting go of my protector, my guide, my sometimes nemesis. I was angry at her for giving up, for casting us out and denying us the chance to wring as much of that precious time out of her as possible. I wanted more. I still want more. But I remember one thing more and more clearly. That night she'd been so strong, unwavering in her determination. I couldn't understand then how she could be so emotionless about it. Didn't she feel it as we did? But as my brother and sister said their final goodbyes, crying and turned to walk outside, I remember seeing her face crack, her eyes well, and the full weight of the sacrifice she was making hit her as she pressed two fingers to her lips and hold them out towards the backs of her departing children. We weren't just saying goodbye to her. She was saying goodbye to us, to love, to joy, to anger, to brushing her teeth, to lazy mornings reading books, to late night bottles of wine, to watching the flowers bloom in her garden, to smelling the crackle of an approaching summer storm, to age, to dreams, to life, but also profoundly to us. I realise now, having become a mother myself, how unbearable it must have been for a mother to say goodbye to her children, to ask them to leave, because to have them stay would make the goodbye seem that much more painful, unfair and treasonous, and so much harder to do. Who wouldn't want just one more day? So here, dear goodbye, I have hated you for so long, but I feel like I finally understand you. Say hi to her for me. Thank you. She promised me it would be a dear joke and she was right. <laughs> Sorry. Magella Cullinan, aside from having one of the most amazing names to say out loud, is someone we are absolutely claiming as one of Dunedin's own. Originally from Ireland, Magella has lived in New Zealand since 2008. She's published two po poetry co collections, Guarding the Flame in 2011 and Whisper of a Crow's Wing in 2018 from Salmon po Poetry Island and Otago U University Press. She was Robert Burns Fellow at the University of Otago in 2014 and a Sir James w Wallace Parr Homestead writer in residence in 2017. Her debut no no novel, The Life of Diaz, was shortlisted for the Dundee International Book Prize, longlisted for, for the New Zealand Ockham Fiction Award in 2019, and was a finalist in the 2018 New Zealand Heritage Book Award. She is a PhD candidate in creative pra practice at the Centre for Irish and Scottish Studies at Otago U University, where she is working on a collection of short stories, and in her spare time, her second novel. As you do. She lives in Port Chalmers with her partner Andrew and their son Robbie, who is eight years old. Thanks very much. Um, I'm very sorry for your loss, Clementine. 
When I arrived in New Zealand for the first time, almost 16 years ago, and was meeting my partner Andrew's Kiwi family in Auckland, also for the first time, I did, as you do, bring a few touristy-type kitschy things from the home country. Uh, it might have been a shamrock oven glove or a leprechaun T-shirt that said, May the road rise to meet you. <laughs> or, May you live as long as you want and never want as long as you live. Or some other nugget of Irish wisdom. I can't remember exactly, but I do remember bringing Andrew's mother a tea towel with the well-known, at least in my part of the world, letter from an Irish mother to her son inscribed on it, which I proceeded to read out loud. The result, Andrew's mother howled with laughter. His father confirmed his long-held suspicion that the Irish were all mad. And his brother was utterly perplexed and just couldn't, no matter how much we tried to explain later, get the postscript or that the letter's general illogic was the whole point. So as a preface into Mother's Day talk, into my Mother's Day talk, I'll share it with you now. 10 Limerick Street, Cork. Dear son, I'm writing this letter slowly because I know you can't read very fast. <laughs> We're all well here. You won't recognise the house when you get home because we've moved. It's quite nice... And it's got a washing machine. I put shirts in there last week, pulled the chain, and haven't seen them since. <laughs> Your father's got a really good job now. He's got 500 men working under him. He's cutting the grass in the cemetery. <laughs> Your sister Mary has had a baby, but I don't know if it's a boy or a girl, so I can't tell you whether you're an aunt or an uncle. Your cousin Pat died there last week at the brewery. He fell into a vat of whiskey. A couple of his friends dived in to save him, but he fought them off bravely. <laughs> he was cremated on Wednesday and, took a week, and it took a week to put the fire out. It only rained twice last week, once for a day and once for three days. My personal favourite, I've sent you a coat, but it was too heavy for the post, so I cut the buttons off and put them in the pockets. <laughs> Your brother Tom is still in the army. He's only been there, and they've already made him a court-martial. <laughs> Your loving mother, P.S., and this is what the brother couldn't get, I was going to enclose five pounds, but I've already sealed the envelope. So in the, spirit, in the spirit of today's session on motherhood, and because Miss Claire Finlayson said I could do what I wanted, um, so you can blame her, I decided to write a letter to my own son. So it's an Irish mother's letter to her Kiwi son. Dear son, many thanks for the Mother's Day full Irish breakfast in bed this morning. It's a pity you never got round to making it. You know, son, I was only talking to our neighbour there the other day, a Mrs L, we'll call her. Indeed, in the interest of anonymity and protecting your rights to privacy, I'll refer to you as son, or possibly as the mobster, the muppet, the robster, the punk. You know yourself in this litigious society, you can't be too careful, so I won't mention any names. Robert, also known as Robbie. 
Anyway, Mrs. L was telling me about her son Jack, we'll call him, middle name Sparrow. I should add that I've noticed that New Zealanders only say good things about their children in general. You never hear them call their offspring muppets or punks or woeful demons, bowel pups, or tell them that they have their hearts broke, or ask them to shut their mouth and eat their dinner. All Mrs. L could say was her son was prone to warts. It's just as well he wasn't born during the European witch trial, so I suppose. (laughs) Anyway, don't get me wrong, Robster, I love you dearly, but herein are my list of grievances. I've decided not to send this through the post because it's not very reliable. So no one need know of it except this audience, who you'll never meet, because what in God's name would you want to be knocking around with a load of mammies for? (laughs) Here it goes. Will you get your shoes on, for the love of God? How many times do I have to tell you to get your shoes on? Are you deaf? Don't come whining to me about your Irish granny when she squeezes you alive and pinches your chip, chipmunk cheeks. She may be 80, but she's quick on her feet. And no, I haven't included the cost of therapy in the trust fund. What trust fund? I'm off to a Greek island when you're 18. Football. Don't mention feckin' football to me. Soccer here, as you call it. On no account am I signing you up for another season of football, freezing my arse below in the field on Saturday morning, and you can't be bothered chasing the blasted ball. <laughs> and all my prayers to Jesus were for nout. Sweet Jesus, please let him get a goal. Just one, one goal. Oh, Jesus, there he goes missing again. Yeah, I know you're more inclined towards individual sports like tennis and swimming. And sure, Mrs. L's son, Jack, won't even stick his toe in the water. So I suppose there's something there for you. I wonder if there's any connection between the chlorine below in the pool and the propensity for warts. I might have to Google that one. (laughs) And how many times do I have to tell you that when my bedroom door is closed, knock? I know at your age you think being in possession of a bottom or a butt or a booty as you sometimes refer to it, is a highly amusing notion. Cue your little eight-year-old ditties referring to monkey's balls. Tarzan, the monkey man, swinging on a rubber band. He slips, he falls, he dislocates his balls. (laughs) And Peppa Pig, joy to the world. Peppa Pig is dead. We barbecued her head. We flushed it down the toilet, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And you needn't ask me if I knew I had a vagina. I'm fully aware of the fact, as you will be some fine day when you find out how it was precisely you got out that time. (laughs) Almost two days, but I don't hold that against you. Not really. As for your philosophical observations, I believe this is something to be encouraged. For example, when you said, and I quote, I reckon the Queen sits on her throne all day because she's really old. When I told this to Mrs. L, she said she wasn't privy to such information, which is surprising, really, given that she swore allegiance to the Queen before she was born, and not like me there a few years back when I became a New Zealand citizen. And no, as much as I wanted to, I didn't cross my fingers behind my back or shout, Up the Republic! In general, I try to avoid scenes. And another one, my personal favourite, when one night I tucked you into bed and you sighed, Ah, why am I so loved? (laughs) Or when you do a Batman voice impression from the Lego movie, I don't do ships. I don't do relationships. (laughs) And Mama, don't you ever wish dragons were 
Like, for real? No, not particularly. <laughs> and Mama, did you know that two girls have a crush on me at school? I didn't, son. How do you know? Oh, I heard them fighting over me. <laughs> It'll be me you'll be having a row within a minute. Why don't you have your shoes on? <laughs> Haven't I asked you a million times? Now, regarding your eyelashes, which are long, thick and beautiful, and will no doubt someday be the cause of great wailing and lamentation with the many who fall for them, offset, I hasten to mention, by your big brown eyes. I'll take credit for them. Thank you very much. Well, I just don't see what you need them for and can't understand why you obstinately refuse to sell them to me in the interim. I've offered you enough money, sufficient to cover therapy. I mean, what self-respecting Lego maniac needs long eyelashes? I think it's essential that I let you in on a secret this Mother's Day 2019, mobster. Not everything is awesome, awesome, awesome. Our generation, and Mrs. L agreed on this key point, think everything is cool. <laughs> put your shoes on, son, will you for feck's sake put your shoes on or I'll be late for school. You know this Lego lark and Ninjago and Jurassic Park and Lego City and all that malarkey and spending five hours in Windsor Legoland there last month? Well, it's a little too much, just a smidgen. And no, I don't want to talk about Master Wu and reaching my full potential as I'm taking a leisurely walk down a country road in Ireland. I'd rather listen to the birds or evade the sheep rowing all, roaming all over the place or the cars hooning round corners like something out of wacky races. Having said all of this, son, I do feel it's important to end on a positive note. You do make me laugh more than cry, and, well, sometimes you do wreck my head, but I wouldn't send you back for love or money. Well, that might be negotiable. There, the other night when I said it was time for sleep, you said to me in a swanky voice, oh, I love you so much, my darling. I can't let you go. Don't leave me. <laughs> well, that won't happen, at, la at least not for another decade yet. And when it does, don't forget to send your address so I can forward you the bill for your general upkeep over 18 years, minus deductions for your eyelashes if you ever agree to sell them. Your loving mother. P.S., I should probably mention your father and I have decided to donate your shoes to charity. Thank you. Thank you. Tina Makaiti lives an hour from Wellington and has two daughters aged 17 and 22. Tina writes essays, novels and short fi fiction. Her latest novel is The Imaginary Lives of James Poor Nicky. And alongside Weti Ihimaida, she is co-editor of Black Marks on the White Page, an anthology that celebrates Māori and Pasifika writing. In 2016, her story Black Milk won the Commonwealth Writers' Short Story Prize Pacific Re Region. Her first not novel, Where the Rare Kohu Bone Sings, won the 2014 Ngā Kupu Ora Aotearoa Māori Book Award for, for Fiction, also won by Once Upon a Time in Aotearoa. In 2009, she was the recipient of the RSNZ Manhire Prize for Creative Writing in Sci sorry for Creative Science Writing, and the Pikihuya Award for Best Short Story in English. She has presented her work all over New Zealand and in Frankfurt, Taipei, Jamaica, and the UK. Tina teaches creative writing and oceanic lit literatures at Massey University. Tina has written something that is a little different today, but that I'm very much looking forward to hearing. She describes it as more of a letter to the mother she was and is. Tina. Kia ora, um, kia ora koutou. Um, thank you, Charlotte, for reading. 
the extended version of my um, my um, bio. Gosh, um, yeah. Kia ora, everyone. My my piece is an essay for my essay collection that might be out next year, um, and it's called "Make Way for Them." You're just a person with lots of needs and anxieties and opinions about the world and this one big yearning that drowns everything else out. And there's a relationship which may or may not be a relationship that is conducive to the nurturing of children, but you think it is. You're 22 and you think lots of things that you will revise in future years, but of some things you are very sure and you should enjoy this, you should enjoy this confidence while it lasts. So even though other people your age aren't doing it, at least none you know, there is a whole other miraculous human in your arms who you gave birth to in a studio flat in Palmerston North, just you and the midwives, because by now you know the relationship isn't conducive to the nurturing of children, though for years you'll keep trying because you're stubborn and you don't believe you could possibly have chosen wrong. And your mother is there, but rather than staying with you and rubbing your back like you imagined she would, like all the home birth books showed the husband doing, she runs around collecting and washing towels and generally cleaning up, and you learn something about your mum you didn't previously know. And the baby is the most beautiful person you have ever laid eyes on. You maintain for the rest of both your lives that she was unusually well-formed and beautiful on the day she was born, with a thick mop of black hair and limitless, searching dark eyes, and a quiet, serious way about her that makes your first days together contemplative and a little bit scary. Because she seems to know things, to look right inside you, and you understand what people mean when they say, a baby is an old soul. But also, like all babies, she is completely helpless, and so your days take on the rhythm of caring for her, feeding, changing, feeding, cleaning, feeding. And when she begins to laugh, long and loud, you both sit on a blanket in the warm light that comes through the ranch slider, and you find ways to make her laugh again and again. It is spring. Five years later, in a different spring, on the other side of the world, Everything outside is under dirty snow, and you've been told many times how bad you are at this parenting thing, how you make poor decisions every day, how you are incompetent and emotionally damaged. Deep down, the part of you that you've kept hidden all your life doesn't believe this, not for a moment. But you've let your other selves, the unsure surface parts, the parts that have certainly been emotionally damaged, take it on. And now you don't know which way is up or what to do. You've been depressed for months. This was your last try at making things work, but you are not, not good enough. Nothing you ever do is good enough, and you're finally ready to admit that maybe your heart doesn't know what it's doing. You're ready to admit you've been wrong all this time, but you haven't taken yourself home yet because you're still stubborn and full of pride, and you don't want everyone to know what a failure you are. And besides... By the time you finally, finally work it all out, there's a new pregnancy, which makes you happy at the same time as you feel deeply hopeless. Early on in the pregnancy, you worry about these feelings hurting the baby and hurting your five-year-old. It is the first time in your life you have seriously contemplated suicide. You think about this obsessively. Which way would be most painless? How you might get access to the tools? Whether it could, would be best to simply disappear? whether you know of any cliffs high enough or traffic fast enough to have the desired effect. 
but you still love your daughter, who is still the most beautiful person you have ever known, and this new baby is likely to be pretty spectacular too. One day when you're out walking hand in hand with your daughter and you're working through the logistics of one particular self-destructive act in your mind, she looks up at you and says, I don't want you to die. That's when you know that you would never do it, that you were never going to do it. But somehow it has given you some relief to imagine you have some control over something. Maybe you still think about it from time to time after that, but as your puku grows bigger, the fantasies grow smaller. You're having a snow fight with your daughter when you feel a twinge, and then later, another twinge. But not until close to midnight do the twinges become pains that can no longer be ignored. You collapse to your knees on the way to the phone to call the midwife, a great pop and gush. The rest is very fast. Another home birth, this time so swift the midwife barely has time to set up her equipment before your second daughter is born, an extraordinary hue of red-brown, gasping lungs full of air to scream with. This one has plenty to say. And you are happy, so happy you can't believe you were ever so sad. Joyful, in fact. And you know the baby brought this with her, this feeling, and that she has saved you, just as her sister did, and that everything will be okay, one way or another. You are so happy for this miracle, this beautiful bundle, this look-at-me change in perspective and human form that you decide from now on you will always choose to be happy. So when the hard times come, you remember this decision and what came before it and how everything can change in an instant. And you're okay, even through the hardest, hardest things, you figure out how to hang in there. And the hardest things are when your children are hurting in ways you can't help when they become old enough to see the world we have made and everything in it, and they react as any sane person would, with anguish and anxiety, with deep, deep sadness. They see so clearly that you think the rest of us should step aside and let them lead. But then you also think we should clean up our own messes, just as we have taught them to do. Watching them grapple with the pain hurts so bad you don't know how to walk through it yourself. And so sometimes you fail them, and sometimes you react badly, and sometimes you just tell yourself over and over to just be there for them, and shut up, for goodness sake, until they're ready to talk. Just hang in there. Because your children are becoming who you hoped they would be. Artists and social activists and politically engaged critics and loving family members, courageous and engaged with the world and kind. And now you're beginning to see, you're beginning to realise there's more than this too. You see you lacked imagination, even though you thought your dreams were too big. Your children speak languages you haven't learnt, go places you haven't been, have conversations you can't conceive of. And you couldn't be more surprised that you got here, all of you, whole and imperfect. Kia Thank you, Tatina. Michelle Court will be a familiar face to many of you, mostly because I think she is the embodiment of the wearing many hats woman. If Michelle hasn't done it, it's probably not worth doing. I thought about how I might edit her bio down, but I feel like if she can cram all that achievement into 217 words, she's earned every single one of them. So here we go. Winner 
of Female Comedian of the Decade at the 2010 New Zealand Com- Comedy Guild Awards. Michelle Acourt is a stand-up comedian, writer and social commentator. Michelle is a frequent voice on RNZ National's 9 to Noon and The, the Panel, a guest host on TV3's primetime show, The Project, and she co-hosts On The Rag, a monthly feminist podcast. One of my favourites. If you haven't listened to it, I would highly recommend it. Um, that wasn't one of your 217 words, sorry. <laughs> um, originally trained as a journalist, she has been writing a weekly newspaper column since 2008, which is published in the award-winning Your Weekend Map magazine and also on the Stuff website. She has written two best-selling books, How We Met in 2018 and Stuff I Forgot to Tell My Daughter in 2015, both published by HarperCollins. Her international experience as a stand-up comedian includes work in the United States, Canada, the UK, Australia, Papua New Guinea and East Timor. She won the VAC Riley Award for Excellence in Comedy in 2015. She has been working as an after-dinner speaker, event host and conference MC for more than 20 years. Michelle is the patron of The Aunties, a grassroots charity for women and children in need. She is also patron of the Moving and Handling Association Association of New New Zealand, which cares for carers in the health sector. Michelle is a proud member of the Actors' Equity and a life member of the New Zealand Comedy Guild. Michelle lives in Auckland and has a 26-year-old daughter who herself has two children aged 5 and 18 months. Michelle, welcome. Kia ora koutou. Thank you, Charlotte. Please lower your expectations after that introduction. Um, my, uh, my daughter was born in 1993, and my granddaughter was born in 2013, and my grandson was born in 2017. Uh, I was present for all three births, which was um, quite good of me, really. Um, my daughter is Ngati Ranginui of the Pirirako Hapu, and my moko are Ngati Ranginui and Ngapuhi. Uh, so they feature in the story that I've written for today, which begins, Dear Grandmotherhood, you are my favourite of all the hoods. (laughs) It's not that I don't love motherhood, daughterhood, sisterhood, but those are complex states of being. I've noticed that once you become a mother, you never experience one emotion at a time. You watch them learn to do things for themselves and you feel proud, but also heartbroken that they need you a little bit less. You're desperate for me time, but when you get it, it's like part of you is missing. You see them, age two, knock over a glass of juice and respond with a perfectly placed and enunciated, fuck, (laughs) and you feel shame and also delight. It's a true story. But... Grandmotherhood for me is a single emotion. It's pure joy. My job isn't broccoli or bedtimes. My job is to make sure Ariana and Nukutafati feel safe in the world. At Nanamishi's house, they get their favourite food, their familiar books and their much-loved movies. There is a big drawer that belongs just to them, filled with treasures from previous visits, waiting to be rediscovered. Nukutafati is too small yet, but it's the the first place that Ariana goes to, pulling up the big red plastic chair so she can reach it to find all the things in there, just as they were last time and the time before that. I love knowing that she knows there is another place, not just at home, where her treasures are kept and protected, that she has more than one place in the world. Here's another thing I like about you, grandmotherhood. I get days off. It took me a surprisingly long time to work out that you don't get a day off from being a mother. 
Holly was born six weeks early, so our start was punctuated by a series of emergencies, plus regular three-hourly feeds of breast milk sent through a tube down her nose. It was a bit tiring, to be honest. I remember searching my head at some point for what day of the week it was and realising it was a Friday and thinking briefly, oh, thank God, it's almost the weekend. I love my daughter fiercely. We've spent significant chunks of her childhood as just the two of us, and we're a very tight unit. But I admit to reading no parenting books, and this was pre-Facebook and mummy blogs, so mostly we were making it up as we went along. I remember being asked in some magazine interview what my parenting style was. (laughs) When I looked bewildered, the interviewer offered some options. Helicopter? Attachment? Authoritative? lawnmower. (laughs) Apparently that's where you smooth the path in front of them as they come along behind you. I said that style was probably too strong a word to apply the kind of mothering that was going on at my place. Mostly I said we just try to get through our shit every day with maximum joy in each other's company and without anyone starving to death. They put me down as free range. <laughs> but really, it was, it was more conscious than that. I come from a, a really long line of stroppy women who believe in social justice, matching shoes and handbags, and telling your children every day that they are beautiful and clever. My mother was a devotee of, of Dr. Spock, the post-war paediatrician, not the, not the dude from Star Trek. That's, He wasn't a doctor, he was Mr. Spock. This is Dr. Spock. Uh, Dr. Spock's theory was to reward good behaviour, set boundaries, but don't crush the child's spirit. She told my brother and me, if not every day, then most days, that we were beautiful and clever. She still does. And look, she says now, of her 60-year-old son and 57-year-old daughter, you both are. I was right. (laughs) My mother also believes in good manners. She's the one who taught me, then my daughter, and now her great-grandchildren, our table manners. She insists at all times that we sit up straight at the dinner table and hold our knives and forks properly, which is really lovely, but a bit weird for Nuku because he's still breastfeeding. (laughs) So let me tell you my favourite story about a grandmother, not my grandmother, but my daughter Holly's. Anyone who tells you that it's easy to be a family and celebrate its ordinary milestones after a divorce is telling you big fat lies. There has been all that fragmenting, which feels more like tearing, as parents scatter, and then the blending as they recouple. Christmas birthdays, Christmas birthdays and funerals are scenes rife with subtext and minor plot lines involving the kind of complex dynamics you see in Game of Thrones. <laughs> The years before and after the divorce from Holly's father were pretty dark times for all of us, which left a lot of wounds. But I can tell you at least one joyful story from our lives about a wider family finding a way to come back together. It happened for Holly and me on her 21st birthday, and it was, as it always is, down to the women. Holly, always brilliant at organising a party, took charge of most of the arrangements and invitations for her 21st. Her Acourt family, her Wilson whanau, her stepfather's Elwood family, her partner's whanau and lots of friends. We hired a downtown bar. We knew the day before that her father wasn't coming because of a mix-up with dates and other commitments and because he's a bit of a dick. (laughs) 
to be entirely honest, there was relief in some quarters, but not in hers or mine. Over the years, I've been able to stop thinking of him as my ex-husband and place him in the world simply as her dad, and a girl needs her dad. So at the beginning of the party that night, we had a room full of much-loved friends and family, but with a big piece missing. And then they arrived. Several of her aunties and many of her cousins with gifts and giggles sent under orders from her paternal grandmother. You have to be there, Nanny Kitty had said that morning to some of the women, and so they came. We used to party once, all of us, me and my seven sisters-in-law, share each other's homes, sing and tell stories. And then the divorce happened and no one really knew if anyone wanted to see each other. Except that I'd had an amazing visit with Holly to Nanny Kitty's place a couple of years before this, which had fixed a lot of things for me, for both of us, I think. And suddenly, in that moment, when all those women walked through the door at Holly's 21st, things went from complicated complicated to simple again. We partied so hard that all the photos of that night are slightly blurred. (laughs) And not just the aunties and cousins came, but her dad's new family too. My daughter's stepmother and stepsister made the journey. There were speeches acknowledging all the branches of her whanau and waiata and haka. Our friends were all funny and kind. And then there was this crazy moment where, on behalf of the Wilson Fano, my ex-husband's wife, Sarah, presented me with a huge whaikaro, a carving to give to my daughter, a special piece of art passed from woman to woman to woman, and right then, something was healed. Just a few weeks later, Holly's paternal grandmother, Nanny Kitty, Kitty Tapu Wilson, passed away. I will do some jokes eventually. <clears throat> We were all there. All 11 of Kitty's children were in the room when she died. Holly and I were among the last to see her before she left us. Holly's father made sure of that, inviting us down to Te Puna, finding a place for us to stay and being very kind. When I left the tangi, I thanked him for all the good things he'd done over those past few days. I told him I couldn't think of anything to be angry with him about anymore. He assured me that he would probably screw up again at some point. I told him I had no doubt of it. His wife, Sarah, was laughing so hard she had to walk away. (laughs) Four years later, we're still sharing our lives with each other and we signed our our texts to each other, Kotahi Aroha, One Love. So I hope to be the kind of grandmother who heals things like Kitty and who nurtures and loves and strengthens like my own grandmother, my own mother. Every time I see them, I tell Nuku and Ariana that they are beautiful and clever and it's already worked. They are extraordinary, gorgeous and gifted. I have 478 photos on my phone that I can show you to prove that. And I know all grandparents say that, but in my case, it's true. But I'm also another kind of grandmother. When Ariana was born, someone left a post on my Facebook page. It said, when my children grew up and left home, I thought I had no purpose in life. And then my grandchildren were born and I found my purpose again. It took all of my good manners not to reply, oh, fuck off. (laughs) Because I have things to do, right? So I love it when I get a text from my daughter to say that Ariana is beside herself with excitement to say, Nana Mishi's talking on the TV. Or that when she went to her first school visit last year, they showed her the library and she pointed at one of the books on the shelf and said, my Mishi wrote that. Because it shows her that Nana has more than one place in the world too. 
So thank you, grandmotherhood. You are my favourite so far. I hope you all packed tissues. Jeepers. <laughs> well, I hope you feel like you've had a stern talking to, a decent meal and a large hug all like rolled into one. Thank you all so much for coming and giving space for these stories to be told. Motherhood is by no means a singular uniform experience, but it is something most of us can relate to and need to hear. So I'd like to sincerely thank these five um, Louise, where are you? Are? Five wonderful ladies for giving us an honest piece of something so personal. So thank you very much. I would also like to thank the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival for hosting this event and for having me here to grease the, the wheels. I hope you have been able to support this wonderful festival by attending some of the other fantastic events that they have organised. As a city of lit- literature, it's great to have festivals of this calibre hosted here in Aote And they are mostly created through hard work and lack of sleep. So thank you to the organisers for all of your money. Ma- Mahi, thank you. And finally, of course, I would like to wish you all in some way a very happy Mother's Day. Thank you. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival recording was brought to you with funding from the Dunedin UNESCO City of Literature and with the support of ORFM. The festival receives help from many corners, but we'd like to give special thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council, the Otago Community Trust and the Lion Foundation. Thank you.